But this is an Indian flap shell turtle. And it is run over by a car. Oh my goodness. And so survived. So it's got a crack halfway down the shell. We have done a wiring. We drilled holes alongside the crack. Inserted screws into that. Shervin Everett is walking me around the animal hospital he curates in the grounds of a traditional animal sanctuary in Ahmedabad, northwest India. Places like this have always amazed European travellers to the subcontinent. And throughout Cambaya, they have hospitals to cure all manner of birds and beasts whatsoever they ail and receive them thither with great vigilance and diligence as if they were men. And when they are healed, let them fly or run loose, which among them is a work of great charity. Jan Jürgen van Lichoten, writing in 1595, visiting the nearest port to Ahmedabad. It'll take at least uh, three to four months for the healing to get completed. The complete cracksy is barely visible now. Lynchoten is Dutch, working for the Portuguese, but he leaked Portugal's secret trade maps and suddenly every sailor in Europe knows how to get to India. If you've been listening to the series, you'll have heard some of India's vast religious complexity. But the headline that fascinates Europe is this compassion that some Indian faiths show to animals. So we've done this operation in like around three to four turtles already and released them successfully. Wow. We remove the pins before we release them, obviously. Yes. And just sort of fill in the holes with the bone cement. This challenges a Christendom that's already splintering in the face of the Renaissance and Reformation. In 16th century Europe, literacy is spreading to shopkeepers and yeomanry. They can read ancient philosophy, Indian travelogues and new religious ideas. This episode will meet the radicals of the English Civil War, London's vegan hermits and the first self-help gurus, and understand how India's compassion for animals challenges England's century of revolution. Vegetarianism, the story so far with Ian MacDonald. Episode 10, Revolution. People can hear the Thames in the background lapping against us. We're one of the few pubs that's standing from the era. In England, the 1600s are when the old order breaks. Ariel Hesseon from Goldsmiths, part of London University, specialises in the radicals of the English Civil War. It was unlike anything that had gone before and probably unlike anything that would come afterwards. It's a revolution not just in politics but also in religion and in a host of other areas, including culturally and, I think, through that, there is something even to say about attitudes to diet and meat. We're in the dockside prospect of Whitby, or as it's nicknamed in the 17th century, the Devil's Tavern. The pub is a meeting place. The pub is not just a place for refreshment. It's not just a place for food and drink. We have evidence that the pubs were also venues for, for radical, for radical talk, for dangerous words. It's been rebuilt since then, but the flagstones are the same as echoed to dangerous words of Parliament versus King. So let's recap. What would the mid-17th century drinkers here know about vegetarianism? 
The literate have access to the classics, including the Epicureans, whose simple lifestyle already has fans amongst the intellectuals of the Republic of Letters, and to Pythagoras, at least as a semi-mythical guru of maths, music, reincarnation and a vegetable diet, and to a lively translation of Ovid's poem where Pythagoras pleads against flesh-eating. Old hands might even have caught a play about Pythagoras in 1596, put on by the Lord Admiral's men, Shakespeare's main rivals. There aren't any overt monks and nuns in Protestant countries like England anymore, but asceticism has its followers. Royalist Thomas Bushell, the old servant of statesman philosopher Sir Francis Bacon, follows a, quote, ascetic diet of oil, honey, mustard, herbs and biscuit. And some people are prescribed a cooling vegetable diet by physicians, or, despite the meat-eating culture, own up to instinctive misgivings about killing animals. One of the parliamentary side's main Puritan clerics, Richard Baxter, admits, I am convinced that to eat flesh is lawful, and yet all my days it has gone as against my nature, with some regret, which has made me the more contented that God has made me long renounce it through the necessity of nature in my decrepit age. Parliament defeats the king, puts him on trial, and in 1649 executes him. It, the 1640s and 1650s was, as one historian has portrayed it, a world turned upside down, or at least a world turning upside down. On the religious level, you had a national church that is emasculated, and replaced by into that vacuum really nothing a void until legislation attempts to introduce something to fill to plug the gap but within that vacuum is what today we would call a group of sects a group of radicals some people suggest that they were more organized more cohesive as a movement others that they are a bunch of nutters on the fringes with no program the truth of course is always somewhere in between but this was certainly unique in giving us an opportunity to hear voices we would never hear before saying things we have not heard before in ways that were also new a puritan thomas edwards publishes three volumes denouncing as many of these radicals as he can the denouncing starts with the title gangrene. But thanks to him, we have some idea of the full range of radicalism, including, for example, this pacifist animal advocate. "'Tis unlawful to fight at all, or to kill any man, yea, to kill any of the creatures for our use, as a chicken, or on any other occasion." Thomas Edwards is somebody who I'm surprised didn't die earlier from a heart attack. "'Tis unlawful to eat any manner of blood in any kind of thing whatsoever, and that black puddings are unhallowed meat, and that the eating of black puddings is a barbarous custom." What was the issue with blood? The issue with blood is that for Jews it was something that you could not drink and you could not eat. While there are no Jews openly living in England until 
the 1656, there are Baptists and some religious radicals who have begun to openly adopt Jewish customs, men who have circumcised themselves. So this is a thread within Christianity that goes back to the early, some of the early Jewish Christian groups yes. who were themselves at a vegetarian strand. Yes. The sects acquire nicknames, the scandalous ranters. Meeting in certain pubs such as the David and the Harp in Moorfields, where wild antics are going on, even arrests are attempted to be made of these people as outraged publicans are calling the, the local authorities to stamp down and restore sexual propriety. Or the Quakers, who, though much changed, still take that name today. Or the Shakers, whose leader promises to part the English Channel and lead them, literally, to Jerusalem. John Robbins was somebody who, during the English Revolution, was, at least it was alleged, worshipped as God by his followers. It's a tabloid scare about a messianic cult that, say the stories, follows a dangerously austere vegetable diet. It's interesting, we have an account where it's said of Robbins and his followers that they tended to eat lots of fruit and things that make you fart. Thou didst deceive many people and then gavest them leave to abstain by degrees from all kind of food that should have preserved and strengthened their natures. But thou didst feed them with windy things as apples and other fruit that was windy, and they drank nothing but water. If true, they could be against eating flesh or just against blood. Possibly it suggests that they would only eat meat they considered to be kosher. A problem in a period when there were no Jews officially living in England. In his heyday, how big a deal was he? And we can say there are a good 20 or 30 followers that we can name. We know their occupation. Interestingly, there's quite a lot of women in there. There's always the possibility he was a charismatic leader. It's all classically tabloid. He believed that the end of the world was imminent, certainly, and he believed that he and his followers were to use the metaphors of the time, amongst the children of Israel, the 144,000 of the Book of Revelation, who would be saved. He would perform great miracles before the end of the world. But in fact, he was uh, imprisoned and recanted and decided to possibly run away with all of his followers' money uh, rather than suffer for his beliefs. The Shakers and Quakers see God not just in the heavens, but in themselves. But some other radicals he got in the world around them, including other animals. I think that the most interesting vegetarian of the period is somebody who has a Baptist background, a man called Roger Crabb. The English hermit, or wonder of this age. Pamphlet about Roger Crabb, 1655. Who counteth it a sin against his body and soul to eat any sort of flesh, fish or living creature, or to drink any wine, ale or beer. It's worth emphasising that this man was a religious radical. He was also politically radical and preached against Charles I's right to rule the country. So Crabbe spent a couple of years in prison for that. Then he fought for Parliament and had his head, quote, cloven to the brain on the battlefield. He left the army and kept a shop at Chesham and hath now left off that and sold a considerable estate to give to the poor, showing his reasons from the scripture. He becomes an anti-consumerist, pacifist, vegan hermit in 1652. It's his career as a hermit that he's famous for, but it's one that his enemies say is explicable not as a trajectory of religious radicalism, but because he was smashed over the skull during the civil wars and went a bit crazy. 
His constant food is roots and herbs, as cabbage, turnips, carrots, dock leaves and grass, also bread and bran, without butter or cheese. His clothing is sackcloth. Yes, grass. The media blames this austere diet for the death of the ranter, Captain Charles Norwood, shortly after he becomes Roger Crabbe's disciple. Crabbe suffers a succession of charges like sedition, blasphemy and Sabbath-breaking. He's accused of witchcraft, but he also claims to have insight as a physician. His patients get folk medicine grounded in not just a vegetable diet, but astrology. In Crabbe's own words... If my patients were any of them wounded or feverish, I said eating flesh or drinking strong beer would inflame their blood, venom their wounds and increase their disease. So there is no proof like experience. In written disputations with Christians across the theological spectrum, he opens a new front against flesh-eating, the Bible. He expands the themes we've heard before, the widespread belief in a vegan Garden of Eden and how Daniel, at the pagan court of Babylon, stuck to a vegetable diet, into an ongoing divine struggle. The permission to eat flesh after the flood, he explains, was just a temporary stopgap whilst plants regrew. So that eating of flesh is an absolute enemy to pure nature, pure nature being the workmanship of a pure god, and corrupt nature under the custody of the devil. After all of that, he marries well. That's in 1663, after a decade as a hermit. But we know he did give up the diet. We assume he gave up the diet because somebody married him. (laughs) He's buried not far from where we are talking in 1680. There is a big crowd. He's recorded as a gentleman, and a monument goes up, calling him, quote, a temple undefiled with blood, a friend to everything that's good. Perhaps it means he maintains a vegetable diet, or perhaps that he just maintains a Jewish-inspired taboo on eating blood. But with his burial, the political, religious and even, yes, dietary radicalism of that world turned upside down is finally gone. But ideas can't be forgotten so easily. Some of the returning royalists were making a more practical contribution to vegetable foods. Last episode, we met royalist refugee philosophers in Paris, but some others, like for example Tom Bushell, retreated to their own personal Eden in their English garden. Paradise is a garden. Anita Guarini is Professor of History and Humanities at Oregon State University. When we both happened to be in Berlin, I took the chance to visit her the Max Planck Institute of the History of Science. Remember from last episode how the widespread belief in a vegan diet informs what philosophers and physicians think should be the diet of man? Even though they weren't necessarily abstaining from flesh, they were trying to move towards that Eden, and in the process make the vegetable diet tastier than just asceticism. In 1650, in witty essay collection Vulgar Errors, the mainstream garden historian Thomas Brown weighed up the arguments for a vegetable diet and went almost as far as radical Roger Crabbe by suggesting that Noah's permission to eat meat was just because the flood had killed all the plants. He was a physician, known mainly as a writer, not as a man of science, really. Leading herbalist William Cobbles calls his 1657 handbook Adam in Paradise, 
and Wax is lyrical about how to know botany is to recover Eden. But the keenest is diarist John Evelyn. Um, he starts his diary when he's in the 1640s, when he's quite young. Talks about you know, going on the grand tour. He describes all kinds of things, which makes his diary incredibly useful for historians. And he's definitely likes to eat vegetables. And this was not necessarily a common thing at this point. The aristocratic diet is heavily based on meat. And he really wants to reform that. Um, he thinks that vegetables are better for you. Such vigour to renew and support our natural strength. Such ravishing flavours and perfumes to recreate and delight us. In short, such spirituous and active force to animate and revive every faculty and part to all the kinds of human and, I had almost said, heavenly capacity. And toward the end of his life, he wrote this discourse on salads, Aceteria, published in the late 1690s. When Evelyn is almost 80. It's a book about vegetables, and it's a book about how to grow vegetables and what they're good for, including their medicinal uses, but also has a fairly large chapter on how to make salad dressing. Um, so, and this was the first book of its kind. What shall we add more? Our gardens present us with them all, and whilst the shambles are covered with gore and stench, our salads escape the insults of the summer fly, purify and warm the blood against winter rage. When Coles and Evelyn weigh up the benefits of, as they'd put it, plant meats over flesh meats, they can now point to the example of India. Coles even locates Eden there, echoing travel writers who find... In the Indian vegetarians, a vestige of that prelapsarian lifestyle. That's before the lapse, the fall from Eden. Tristram Stewart is the author of Bloodless Revolution, Radical Vegetarianism and the Discovery of India. So much so that the Pope's emissary in the 13th century actually went and joined a Buddhist monastery for a while in the belief that he was joining the last vestiges of uh, life before the fall. When India grows in importance both economically and culturally for Western European nations who are going out there in the interests of trade, there is a huge surge in anthropological and philosophical interest in those Indian vegetarians who had attracted the interest of, of travellers since antiquity. My name is Gira Shah. I'm the uh, managing trustee of uh, Jivdaya Charitable Trust. The official name of the animal hospital in Ahmedabad. And it is in the premises of Ahmedabad Panjarapur Sansa. It was a routine stop off in any travelogue for a, a European going out to India to write about the naked Brahmins, the philosophers, the Hindus. John Overington, 1689. For within a mile distance from Surat is a large hospital, supported by the Banyans in its maintenance of cows, horses, goats, dogs, and other animals diseased or lame or infirm or decayed by age. We can see a couple of dozen cows lazing under the sun. Yeah. What's a pandrapa? It's a shelter house for disabled, distressed, large animals. The people, those who pet the cows, they can stray the cows after the non-use. 
of their cow. They leave them, they, they, they abandon them. them. Yes. Over a period of time, there are some, uh, there is a community like Jains and Vaishya. You might remember the most vegetarian of India's religions. They build a specific area for this large animal, specifically for cows, because cow is a Hindu religious animal. This was of interest on a multitude of different levels. Firstly, uh, empirical proof that people could really survive on a vegetarian diet, a fact that had been brought into doubt by uh, Western Europeans who believed that meat was essential for strength and for activity. Here was a population of millions surviving, they believed, by and large, on vegetables. From a philosophical point of view, it was interesting, not least because of its similarity to indigenous European philosophies, in particular that of Pythagoras, the practice of not killing animals because they may contain reincarnated souls. That was philosophically of huge interest. How come the Indians and the ancient Greeks came up with the same set of ideas? Was that a coincidence? Or, as many people came to believe, did Pythagoras go to India and either learn his philosophy from these ancient Brahmins, or indeed, according to some, teach the whole of India his Pythagorean philosophy. And therefore, from that point of view, the existence of reincarnation-believing Hindu vegetarians was uh, of profound historical interest. We learned in episode three that the real Pythagoras grew up on trading island Samos between Greece and Persia, There's no real reason to believe he went to India, though he might just have heard something from traders. And then, theologically, the existence, or indeed as many people believe, the survival of vegetarians in India, presented this possibility that here was a band of people who had somehow maintained a practice of vegetarianism since the origins of humans on Earth since paradise. There were individuals within Western Europe who thought the Brahmin vegetarians of India were so amazing and so likely to be a true vestige of prelapsarian ideal lifestyles that they took up this lifestyle and belief system themselves. Thomas Tryon, existing uh, originally as as a hat merchant in Uh, 17th century London. For some reason, they and shoemakers tended to be politically very radical. Um, Read the Indian travelogues avidly. And just starts reading all the works on popular medicine that are coming out, all the works on natural philosophy, works on alchemy, astrology. And collated information about them from every different source that he could lay his hands on. And starts writing works on popular medicine, on what's been called the long life literature. A way to health, long life and happiness. Tryon definitely taps into this long life literature, but aims it not toward the aristocrats or the upper classes, but toward his class of people, toward the lower classes. He's saying, you too can enjoy these benefits of life. It's not just for the upper classes. The whole treatise displaying the most hidden secrets of philosophy communicated to the world for the general good by Thomas Tryon. He was very big on self-education. Read books yourself. Don't depend on what other people tell you. 
try and incorporate what he knows of India into his own religious radicalism. Which gave the Brahmins precedent over Christianity in terms of holding on to original truths. And he profoundly believed that the meat-eaters around him were a, a symptom of the fallen nature of humanity and essentially tried to set up something that was, in all but name, a Brahmin cult in London. His self-help books might be populist and softly, softly. He definitely would prefer that people ate vegetables over meat. He has sections on, on different kinds of meat. But right from the start, he sets out his beliefs. He wrote about 20 or more books about vegetarianism and attacked it from every single different point of view. The fact that you could save money by living on vegetables instead of buying meat. Which is an argument that Crabbe also makes. The fact that eating meat made you more aggressive and more like the animal that you were eating. Again, kind of connects it to this radical anti-aristocratic politics. He presented the health case for vegetarianism the fact that monks lived longer than the average human population and that they didn't eat meat, the fact that the Indians lived to a, a great long age. In 1683, he publishes his philosophy, but as a fictional dialogue with the Brahmin. Writing as the Brahmin, Tryon says... We find the famous philosopher Pythagoras flourishing, who expressly taught his followers not to eat any flesh, but content themselves altogether with vegetables, and this great man, travelling for the equest and diffusion of knowledge into diverse parts, left not our India unvisited, and there planted this wholesome doctrine, which ever since hath not wanted observers, derived down by a continual succession to our times. In 1695, Tryon concocts what he says is a historic cache of letters supporting his views. Transcript of several letters from Averroes, medieval Spanish-Arab philosopher. Also, several letters from Pythagoras to the King of India. It's a very brazen fraud. Tryon, writing as Pythagoras, says... Houses and hospitals, sufficiently endowed, must be provided to preserve the inferior animals from the injury of the elements in their old age. For charity and kindness to innocent and helpless creatures is the most acceptable service to the good powers, attracting the benevolent influence of all things. I'll show something here. This is a wheat flour. Wheat flour. For ant. And a squirrel. Food for ant. It's a low table leaning against the low concrete wall. And it's a beautiful concrete wall. It's shaped into ornate carvings. But there are two blocks and a, sl and a concrete slab. And on the slab, I can see several piles of white flour. And quite a few ants. Yes. So all the animals are looked after? Yes. He looked at the way we, as a species, pollute the air with sulphurous smoke. He looked at the way in which we pollute rivers by throwing our urban sewage into it. And he also identified this, what we would call the, uh, the circulation of pollution. So he was interested in us, how we were polluting environments, how that pollution would get into fish, how we would then eat the fish and pollute ourselves. 
these kinds of ideas are really the beginnings of how vegetarianism in Europe starts to be the incubator for what we now call environmentalism. The idea that non-humans have a value in and of themselves, not just in so far as they serve human ends. And the idea that we, humans, need to realign ourselves with those interests in order both to live a moral life, but also for the wholeness and the health of the planet, the environment around us. The literary sensation of Paris in the 1680s is Letters Writ by a Turkish Spy. It builds on the popular reaction to those Indian travelogues and the suspicion that the East might actually hold the moral high ground. It also invents a whole new genre, an intercepted bundle of letters. The sequels, published in England, become increasingly sceptical about flesh-eating and religion. The main character, Mahmoud, is a spy for the expanding Ottoman Empire living in Paris. So it turns the tables on those travelogues and asks what they would say about us. The anonymous English writers seem to be secret radicals, sceptics, perhaps even heretical deists who believe in a god without miracles. Mahmoud is free to pose uncomfortable questions about God because he's asking them about Islam. And of course, he dreams of a posting to the Mughal's court in India. To converse with the Brahmins and pry into the mysteries of their unknown wisdom, which occasions so much discourse into the world. And he complains of Europeans. The Franks, who are more ready to find faults in others than to mend their own, censured the Muslims for extending their charity to beasts, birds and fishes, who, in their opinion, have neither souls nor reason, and consequently are insensible of our good offices towards them. He proclaims, perhaps inspired by Thomas Tryon, that Jesus was a vegetarian, is seen, that he's met the immortal wandering Jew who practices the original vegetarian Judaism and calls India the only public theatre of justice towards all living creatures. He eventually completely disavows flesh-eating. Now, since it is evident that no man would willingly become the food of beasts, therefore by the same rule... He ought not to prey on them. But even in fiction, it's rare this century for someone to follow through. He tries over a dozen times. But by the force of a voracious appetite, suffered myself to be carried back to my own intemperance. By now, Britain has settled as a Protestant constitutional monarchy. But its foremost scientist is secretly a veg-curious religious radical. Newton was definitely unconventional in his religious beliefs. Isaac Newton's unpublished manuscripts reveal, like Tryon, a secret belief in a root religion behind Judaism, Christianity, Pythagoras, and Brahminism. Comprehended in the precepts of the sons of Noah, the chief of which were to have one God, definitely did not believe in the divinity of Christ. So that was heretical. Not to feed on the flesh or to drink the blood of a living animal, but to be merciful even to brute beasts. Going back to that same Jewish taboo on blood, and, like Sir Francis Bacon a couple of shows ago, 
interpreting it as a metaphorical plea for mercy. Lived what was by all accounts a very abstemious life. Don't know for sure if he was a vegetarian, but certainly did not eat a lot of meat. But Newton kept his speculations to himself. The cultured poetry of the 18th century imagines alternatives to eating animals, even if the poets themselves don't follow through. Jonathan Swift's Gulliver's Travels, a parody of the travelogue genre and a satire of society at large, includes a land of vegetarian talking horses. Mandeville's 1723 Fable of the Bees argues against flesh-eating and punctures people's squeamish hypocrisy. And I question whether ever anybody so much as killed a chicken without reluctancy the first time. Some people are not to be persuaded to taste of any creatures they have daily seen and been acquainted with whilst they were alive. Others extend their scruple no further than to their own poultry and refuse to eat what they fed and took care of themselves. Yet all of them will feed heartily and without remorse on beef, mutton and fowls when they are bought in the market. The greatest poet of the age is Alexander Pope, who sensitively meditates on a condemned lamb. The lamb thy riot dooms to bleed today. Had he thy reason, would he skip and play? Pleased to the last, he crops the flowery food and licks the hand just raised to shed his blood. But these are all acts of imagination. We've no reason to believe that even Mandeville abstained. Folk make the same arguments as they still do today, that without flesh-eating, those animals would either overrun humanity or not exist. Or, as in Pope's case, let readers imagine that their animals felt no fear or stress before their slaughter. Oh, blindness to the future, kindly given, that each may fill the circle marked by heaven, who sees with equal eye, as God of all, a hero perish or a sparrow fall. This poetry of sensibility convinces some readers to abstain and will find its way into later vegetarian anthologies, but for the most part, it's like looking at pictures of cute animals on the internet, feeling something rather than doing something. But flesh-eating has reached the point where it's something that needs to be defended. In 1703, one of Sir Isaac Newton's circle publishes a flattering but unauthorised book on his calculus, and they fall out. This is George Shane, a physician originally from the countryside near Aberdeen. Definitely not in the uh, center of intellectual life, shall we say. And his family is not wealthy, although they are, they're kind of the poor branch of a pretty well-off family. George is already massively overdoing it in the big city. In his case of the author, he confesses, Constantly dining and supping in taverns, and in the houses of my acquaintances of taste and delicacy, my health was in a few years brought into a great distress. At this point, he's also quite obese. He likes to eat, he especially likes to drink. After another book flops, it gets too much for him. Has a kind of um, breakdown in some ways. A constant headache, giddiness, lowness, anxiety and terror, so that I went about like a malefactor condemned or one who expected every moment to be crushed by a ponderous instrument of death hanging over his head. The brutal concoctions, purges and vomits of the 18th century don't save him, and he retreats into the countryside. 
he finds some solace in Christian mysticism and a more modest diet. As he goes on a diet, he feels better. He finds the works of this Dr. Taylor of Croydon who recommends an all-milk diet. He sets off. Next day, in the middle of winter, to ride to Croydon to advise with Dr. Taylor personally. I found him at home, at his full quart of cow's milk, which was all his dinner. And loses way and kind of has this revelation about the relationship between mind and body, the relationship between diet and health. And that's how George Chain becomes the 18th century's vegetarian diet guru. And Chaney, from then on, was a big fan of drinking milk, which was not something that was very common. So people in cities did not drink milk. They ate cheese, but they didn't drink milk. So drinking milk was kind of unusual. And also just drinking milk was not something people did. I mean, unless you were an infant, and then you wouldn't be drinking, probably wouldn't be drinking cow's milk anyways. And he becomes a big advocate. Milk being vegetables immediately cooked by animal heat and organs. Pure, it's motherly, it's... I think if he could advocate drinking, you know, human milk, he would have, but he, I don't think that would have been possible. <laughs> we can see a division emerging between vegetable diet advocates who are against milk, like crab, tryon, or, well, me, and those who idolise it, like Indian vegetarians, Shane and his ally across the channel in France, Heke, who we met last episode. And eventually moves to Bath, which is the big kind of health spa. His weight yo-yos over the years as he resumes and abandons and resumes his milk diet, but only between obese and massively so. Pity the poor bearers of the sedan chair carrying this uh, 220 kilos through Bath. One poet calls him the great fat doctor of Bath, but that's kind of the point. I know, it's funny, it seems totally contradictory. And I think part of it is that in many of his works, he presents himself as a fellow sufferer, which was, again, not... His works have a very personal tone, many of them. That I've been through this, I know what it's like, I know it's hard. Much like modern diet books, which are written by people who have gone through this process and therefore they have the experience. Celebrity patients include Alexander Pope and royalty. He treats illnesses physical and mental. His prescriptions, he thinks, to physically unblock nerves, includes purges, emetics and toxic mercury concoctions, but also what we'd now call a talking cure. What we might call mental and spiritual exercises. And of course, a lighter diet. Moderation, more vegetables, less meat, no red meat, and starts writing in the early 1720s these books on an essay of health and long life and so forth that are hugely popular, reprinted over and over and over and over and over. He's just becomes in many ways this kind of catchword um, mentioned in poetry, he's satirized, he's all over the place. And his writing spreads his advice further. An advocate for dietary reform among not the working classes, but the upper classes. So the upper classes, the big meat eaters, the people who have gout, who have all kinds of horrible health problems, who have the stone, these issues that he says is totally related to their lifestyle. John Wesley, the founder of Methodist Christianity, is one of Shane's patients and follows his milk and vegetables prescription. When Methodist leaders are accused of ostentatious asceticism by a critic, the Bishop of London, 
Wesley writes him a letter about his diet. Wesley discounts any motives other than physical health, saying the diet leaves him, quote, free from all bodily disorders. He eventually summarises Shane's ideas into his popular medicine book, Primitive Physic, spreading them to more middle and working class readers. And though he maintains that Christianity allows flesh eating, sympathy for animals is there in his sermons. Yet how severely do they suffer? Yea, many of them, beasts of burden in particular, almost the whole time of their abode on earth. As we heard last show, most physicians will happily discuss whether you should sometimes prescribe a vegetable regimen, but many suspected Shane of being a full-blown radical, and after decades of mincing his words, he comes out with his fully radical theology in 1740. I can't find any great difference on the foot of natural reason and equity alone between feasting on human flesh and feasting on brute animal flesh, except custom and example. Shane sets out an idiosyncratic form of Christianity that borrows liberally from Neoplatonism, like Tryon, Jewish Kabbalism, and includes reincarnation on other planets. This rude and unfinished sketch may possibly be thought by some an imaginary and enthusiastical romance, and so perhaps it may be. This is, after all, the age when all the old certainties have broken down, when people can pull their ideas from across the world and from across history. The Republic of Letters, we explored in the last episode, is now open to everyone who can read. The radical ideas that flourished during the English Civil War have not been forgotten. Even if dietary radicalism is now a secret hidden in the manuscripts of Isaac Newton or behind a fictional foreigner or revealed only reluctantly. Thanks to agricultural advances and particularly John Evelyn, vegetables are a more varied and interesting part of the Western diet. The Edinburgh Chair of Medicine still, as last episode, sometimes prescribes a so-called cooling vegetable regimen, but he now calls it a Chanian diet, after the celebrity diet doctor. Healthy folk turning to entirely vegetable diet is no longer unheard of either. In the 1720s, a young Ben Franklin tries it after reading Thomas Tryon, and the diet now has a name. Pythagorean. Most educated Europeans now know, or rather think they know, that Indians are vegetarian, that Pythagoras was vegetarian, and that some physicians think it's the best diet for humanity, and that some strange sects agree with them. Next episode, we'll see how the vegetable diet moves from the intrigues of colonial India to the cafes of Enlightenment Paris and the heart of their revolution. With the voices of Jeremy Hancock, Brian Roberts and Ian Russell, and the music of Handel, Purcell, performed by Papalin, and Rob Masters. Follow on Facebook and Twitter.com slash veganoption and discover more at theveganoption.org. And as always, please do get the word out. Review on iTunes, your podcast provider. It's now on Google Play Music Podcasts, Share it on Twitter and Facebook and let your friends know. Thank you very much for listening.